0: Welcome to Ferment Radio, a podcast series on bacterial and social fermentation. Fermentation can incite social action, spark creativity and bring surprising new taste to our lives. My name is Aga Pokryvka, and I invite you to join us in a conversation on living interconnectivities from macro to micro, from societal to cellular and from global to personal. average person eats around 35 tons of food during a lifetime. Of course, the exact amount varies according to gender, size, diet, lifespan and geopolitical location. But still, it's quite an enormous amount. Can we actually tell the story of someone's life through food? I asked this question to Zan Khan an ecological artist based in Cape Town, South Africa. She works with multidisciplinary and multispecies strategies to question the different ways we consume. Join us in this conversation to know more about Zan's story about food.
1: I think we should start since this is the journey that I'm on currently, in that my first foods of life, my mother will never let me forget, is that I was breastfed for three years which is not, uh, I know in Europe it's much more common, but here it's not so common. <laughs> and so when people hear you say, ah, you were breastfed for three years, what? But um, so I have, i have you know, this idea of nourishment and <laughs> familial tie I think is embedded in who I am. Whenever I had the option as a kid, I, I loved and still do loved fruits. Fruit was like a an opportunity in the summertime, I used to freeze all the fruits and then eat them, kind of like scrape them apart and eat them frozen. This was very different to a lot of the other kids that I grew up with. And so when, in this thing about agency, like fruit is easy to pick off the counter, right? Um, But when I had money, the only thing that I wanted to buy from the shop was rice paper, which they sold, I think was half a cent (laughs) per sheet or or like two sheets or something and sweets, and the sweets was so, I was so involved with the sweets that all my teeth fell out, and so I have had always had this very weird relationship with teeth, like weird and wonderful, I really appreciate teeth, <laughs> um, but basically, I think the, one of the things that, that one culminates around my food childhood was that growing up, um, our food traditions were very different to our peers. Um, in our schooling, for example, we were the only ones who were eating the kinds of food we were, and kind of our cultural upbringing is what we call Cape Malay. It's not a typical Malay cuisine. It's it's a mix of of a whole bunch of things that that found itself here in the Cape over a few hundred years. Um, but it's itself become quite synonymous with with this place. But back then, you know, it wasn't what the other kids were eating and so it was always a little bit left of centre but, but but always special. And even within our community, in our family we would be eating things that not many other people would still you know, meals that people would be making. So sheep trotters cooked with tomato stew, um, and sugar to make it what we called sticky food, but it's basically just trotters. And then I think we can quickly fast forward I was always so I was very sickly as a child and then kind of trying to gain a a kind of understanding as to what my health was and how to fix it so I would get for example sinus flu I'd, I'd be sick at least four times a year and then I'd be out for two weeks at a time very kind of stressful um I would always kind of have this feeling that if I was an animal like say I was an impala in the felt you know like the lions would have hyenas would have taken me down quickly because I was weak in in many ways and if I'm weak for myself then I must be weak for my herd you know (laughs) so I must have been around like thinking around these things around the age of 16 but only really going into it at about 19 when I could start to see differences and, and start to look at solutions that were working for me. So as a, just as a general example, to stop washing with chemically kind of toiletries, you know, and really just looking at the things in their simplicity. It was this at the same time that my interest in plants was fostered and and the plants uh, led me to like very interesting and intricate and wonderful um, spaces and places. And one of it was to understand health from the way that we keep ourselves clean to the way that we, I guess, beautify ourselves or, or look at, at the kind of hmm, politics of aesthetics, I guess. Through plants um, and through indigenous knowledge and because South Africa, uh, Southern Africa is really such, you know, th- there's been just compounding, as many other places, just compounding colonial efforts um, that culminated into an apartheid regime that really killed so much of our knowledge and, and not just killed it but you know put a lot of shame into what knowledge uh, is that's not an imperial that's not from an imperial source and so having to excavate um through all the you know the aesthetics of the time which was for example there was a lot of shame to have hair that wasn't straight but my hair is so far from straight and so you know you would like laboriously kind of go through all this you know, to ensure that the, that you looked a certain way. And, and and I could never understand, like, why am I fighting like just to look a certain way? This is really expensive for my time, and I really don't want to be doing this. And so, you know, like my, my mother would say that I rebelled, but it really wasn't a rebellion. It was really – it was a rebellion from – I guess a systemic way of thinking, but more just trying to get back to what, what you know. what is that natural way of being? If I was an impala, how would, how would my hair look? No, if I was an impala, what, what would those parts have been from the get-go to where I am now to ensure that I could be healthy and not just healthy, but it's that thing about, yes, we can survive, but we should be thriving. Why am I not thriving? Um, and so, carving out, you know, all the dependencies that one has in terms of the way that capitalism has captured our 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 cultures and our habits, um, I was able to find solutions that worked for me. So, a simple example would be um, finding local honeycomb and propolis and so on to cure myself from. Um, from sinusitis, which I, I managed to do over about two years of consuming these honeycombs. I guess another example is this thinking through the straightness of the hair and how, you know, how you know, the politics of hair actually and the peace that I came to myself um, through plants, through food was, uh, I think, a big, um, a big solution was when I started brewing kombucha although we should say fermented tea. So using fermented tea uh, to make an acetic tea, so a kind of a vinegar, we're just letting the ferment go longer um, and using it as a conditioner for my hair because apple cider vinegar was far too strong, far too acidic. But indigenous knowledge speaks about our local, what's kind of affectionately or colloquially called wild rosemary or kapokpos, which is a kind of uh, herbaceous plant that that grows similar to to rosemary, and it has a similar smell. Um, but it's also known to be very good for for use on hair. And so taking that, um, taking the scoby from the fermented tea, and thinking through, hmm, okay, if if we know that you know this mother or the scoby likes to be tannin rich, likes tannin rich plants. The Fainbos biome where I live is full of tannin tannin, diversity. There's so many plants here whose survival really depends on their tannin abundance. Um, And so I started fermenting a whole lot of plants and found that the Ereocephalus africanus, the wild rosemary, was a perfect conditioner for my hair. And I mean, I'm like 19 or 20 years old at this stage, right? Um, But then... When I studied landscaping and horticulture around that time, and and we had a big um, emphasis on indigenous plants because we have such a a huge um, endemic diversity where we are and, and also just a huge diversity of plants in general in the zone where we live. And so that was always such a huge emphasis. And I took that into thinking around food as well. Because we were eating so many foods from other lands, right like where how how is it that we are at you know a center of of origin where humanity uh there was a birth of humanity here, yet we're eating all these foods that are so from so far away um and so I started thinking through food from from um I don't want to say an academic perspective because it, you know, it was, it was, it really was so much more entrenched into my life. But at the time, I was studying, and I needed a, a research project for horticulture, and because I'm such a, you know, born in the city, and there were so many generations of us that have been born in the city, we are city people, but with such an affinity for non-city things. I wanted to understand how I could find solutions for kind of food issues in the city without having to go to rural areas and just, you know, copy paste my lifestyle there and and just create more issues further afield. Um, And so I did this research project around green roof systems and urban agriculture, which back then was so ahead of the game by then. I mean you know like green roofs is nothing new but here it definitely is and there's a a lot to be said also about when knowledge comes you know when knowledge is 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 shared or disseminated through a particular body type if i can call it that so i am how, how i would be classified here in terms of racial denomination is either as Cape Malay, so in a apartheid regime, you would be Cape Malay or Indian or black or colored or white, right? And now we kind of say, like Cape Malay, is, it's a misnomer, but um, you could say like colored. So I'm not quite black, not quite white kind of thing. Plus I'm a woman, plus I'm young. And this can get a lot of people very agitated. Um, and so especially when you're coming with... with with new knowledge or when you're coming across with, um, really, um, not challenging, but really actually challenging the status quo. I mean, my experience of injustice in the city was very much kind of city injustice where you have like poverty lines and people begging at the traffic intersections and people always asking for food and the quality of food being, you know, really great or really poor. There's a lot of hidden food, you know, politics in the city that we don't recognize about, you know, things that we know now. And so I made it my mission to bring in all these, like the the reality of the, the rural poor, not just of the people, but of the land into the city and, you know, sharing the story into the city to say like, yo, everything that we experience here, you know, there, there's a story of where it comes from. But. That story is so broken because there's a lot of injustice that has to happen in order for these, whatever it is that we're eating or consuming, to arrive where we are in the ways that it does, you know. And the way that we um, kind of um, put all these fancy frames around certain elements of food um, that has become so toxic, actually. Like the way that, you know, there's this fad or the trend around anything from veganism to making fruit juices to like what like the the kind of diet culture and it, all the complexities around food in the places that i was working on the west coast of south africa in the north it's basically desert and so people are expected or trying to you know process or, or produce vegetables but there's no water and so a lot of the time, people's diets, as it has been for generations, is, is high in meat, and they survive very well like that, you know. Um, and so thinking through, you know, farming vegetables, the because of that severing and that kind of colonial and apartheid um, regime the, and forced removals, a lot of people didn't grow up on the farm, or learning how to farm from their go- from their grandmother, um, like people would have done towards the east of the country, where there was still you know people were were in homelands in the west of the country, it was not so. Um, there was also genocide in the west of the country. All of these things. So, like teaching people, and I hear this, you know, us young people teaching the elders of our of those communities how to farm, something was just not not right. You know, it's like it, We are not the knowledge holders. Um, We just need to facilitate this process. And one of the huge um, areas that was, there was a huge need was that people were were planting everything at once and thus harvesting everything at once. So no one was staggering um, harvesting or or seed sowing. Um, And so they would just have huge wastage because there'd just be this mountain of whatever, tomatoes or green pepper. And people generally only made, you know, jams or, chutneys and things that required sugar and sterilization and so access to market was very slow and there's so much racism and so you know stores didn't want to buy from the farmers and blah 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 at the end of the day like you know we needed to learn how to preserve this stuff and so that's where um so i had been making like fermenting a few things but then it became very obvious that you know we needed a, a, a process that didn't necessarily require um, refrigeration and so fermentation became a huge opportunity um, and that subsequently has continued and then um, and a lot of the work I do around seed was also really born in this time and then when I burnt out and couldn't actually I couldn't keep up with the pace of this political education and so on because it was really eating my soul and I ended up, um went through a big depression where I was going to leave food and this is not for me and I need something replenishing. I was doing a lot of work for the slow food movement. We were kind of running the youth network in South Africa and pushing for an African youth network. I was doing so much and just using all my energy towards that because it was really something I believed in. Everybody needed to know about food. But in that depression uh, that I landed in, I... I came to a new understanding of how I could operate um, and really doing deep, dark work, calling on ancestors I'd never even met for guidance. And um, it was abundantly clear that food was still the path that needed to be walked and to not uh, let go of it and continue with, with the things that found me joy. And so I went back to the kitchen and back to the jars. Back to the produce and fell in love with it again, but found myself um, not in the state of needing to, you know, be a producer and, you know, save all the harvest from going to waste and 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 be the one who would have all the answers for the farmers. No, it was about um, relaxing into the fact that my duty was way more about telling the story and keeping the relationships and keeping the access and all the privileges that I had to have that kind of access. um, But to tell the story in a way that was more powerful. And so as a means of honor, um, to be able to tell stories that will speak to all those different heritage, uh, all the different heritages that we come from and I come from, that this landscape has seen and this landscape holds. And so, yeah, so the food, journey becomes, you know, this ger- like a journey um, that is able to traverse time and space and species and, you know, even into a deep time. How one can tackle
0: like changes in food systems from like a, you know, personal perspective
1: Uh, if you could see me (laughs) I like I'm indicating you know all that political stuff all the the way the governments run and the way the corporations run that stuff that's up here you know that that kind of governs the world or the way the world works two things is that the one is that it's all you know really imagined it's it's Things where people have taken power or kind of forced uh, agendas in a, in a particular way. Um, and the other thing, which I'll, I'll get back to in a second, but the other thing that's important to think about is that um, all of those systems, the corporations and the governments and stuff, they're also inherited systems. So they also have their own way of being and they've also learned their own way of being. So, a good example is you know if we in the in the contemporary reality of a place like South Africa, where we have this government that we're uh, that's been running, so you know Nelson Mandela, there was this kind of so-called democracy, a black president, all those things wonderful, amazing, blah, blah, blah. um it was very quick to see that what had happened was that the government that that democracy brought us was really in many ways just inherited from that apartheid government you know same buildings same honestly kind of ways of governing people understanding people i mean it's not as if you know we had there were many other governance or systems of governance that that were running from way before colonial times um but even this idea of corporations—it's also inherited from those colonial. I mean, the Dutch East India Company, the VOC, was a multinational corporation. And so, basically, what I'm trying to say is, all that information is is very complex to think about, and it's you know some, often held in kind of intellectual spaces or or academic spaces that are not conducive to easy storytelling, and also not that accessible to people. So to take all that information and translate it into thinking. And and the easiest way for me to do that is to say each individual, let us think about our, the ways that we consume things and not just the food that we consume, but you know, what do we use when we are feeling sick? What do we use to, you know, clean our teeth, to clean our homes, to brush our hair? How do we engage with our friends when we want to entertain ourselves? What are we using in our menstruation? What are we using, you know, consuming in our sex lives? What are we, like all the things that we use from, you know, even in a synesthetic way, in, in all the different elements of our lives? How much of those consumeristic things, consumption things, need financial means to be engaged with? you know how much of it is a knowledge system that we can freely flow with and and if we think about that how much of that how much of our survival depends on those consumptions and the ways that we consume um, that we we need actual you know you know find like money for um so how much of our survival is embedded in a financialized system, basically. And so once you begin to think through those things and try to unhinge yourself from, from the more neoliberal concepts or the, more, the ways that neoliberalism has and, and that kind of capitalism has really embedded itself in our survival, you know, which, you know, even our emotional selves, all of those things then you can really begin to see how, you know, fuck the system is or how, not because the system actually works beautifully for what it's designed to do. I mean, how how much of our own selves, our spirits, our cultures are embedded in this neoliberal system and in which ways can we, I use the word unhinge, but which ways can we really unravel ourselves if we slowly had to follow the string and undo every knot?
0: Maybe it's also a bit related to, uh, what is also part of your activities which is the indigenous food reclamation and uh, i would be very curious that you tell us uh, more about that part of your of your work
1: Um, with indigenous food reclamation so this is thinking about like you know also the rise of heirloom varieties you know and the the real you know how gardening is all about the trends and all about the fashions and the fads i mean like for hundreds of years it's been like this so when heirloom plants came in it was around the time that i was studying um and we started understanding that what you get black tomatoes and you know you know you know purple carrots and all these things but then where is the indigenous food and then beginning to excavate and and like it really felt like an archaeological dig like into into the minds of our communities, you know, within my family and beyond and in the spaces that I was occupying at that time. Literally I'd be in the queue in the bank or, you know, at at the shopping center, whatever, at the grocery store. And I would just pick up a conversation with the person in front of me or behind me and be like, you know, indigenous food, (laughs) or, you know, like food that you grew up with that you don't have anymore or, you know what kind of foods was your grandmother eating or cooking, or do you remember blah 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 blah? And this idea of indigenous food was never even in the consciousness of people. There was never this like, oh, what? There was a whole cuisine or a whole not a cuisine, but a whole way of like a whole food ways that that was thriving, um, you know, before colonial entry. That because of the huge diversity and biodiversity in this in the space in the land and sea the food here is you know it's not only abundant it's generous there is such a generosity in how much food there is uh, available on the mountain on the felts uh, in the dunes in the sea in the coastal zones Um, We have so much salt, we have so much, you know, all the huge diversity of foods and even waters. I mean, this whole place um, is is really the the culture of people and and the the relationship with this landscape has so much to do with water. And this place is full of sweet, sweet water.
0: It made me think of this situation, which was quite loud in media a couple of years ago, that Cape Town was short on water. Uh, if there is abundance of uh, sweet water, why there was an issue with uh, water shortage in Cape Town, right?
1: The idea of damming in South Africa is really taking water from you know everywhere in the world is like this, but taking water and collecting it from um, so that it, it, you neglect to let it flow in spaces that need it, where there are often settlements of people because you need to feed a city, you know, but the ways that the city is being fed is really, and it, this has became more and more abundantly clear in that, um, in the drought was that a lot of the water was being used to, in agriculture, to feed the crops with herbicides and pesticides, um, and fungicides and so on. Um, and, you know, huge kind of animal lots and these kinds of things. It wasn't like the the household use was not where where the issue was but of course the politics then uh talks to the fact that every citizen needs to you know you know make make what do you say like take part in in finding a solution um because a lot of that agricultural system is not really feeding the nation a lot of it is going to export um, and if it does feed the nation, it's very thin nutrients. It's more about you know making sure the working class is working as opposed to or surviving as opposed to thriving. Um, and so at that time it it became so clear because the water that flows out of um, out of the mountain flows all the time. the The mountain used to be the table mountain, right? The table mountain. Uh, table mountain scape, the table mountain range, um, five million years ago it used to be an island and so it's always had its feet in the water and this is one of the indigenous names of this place is Hurikwaho which is you know the the mountain that rises from the sea which is much more, um, you know, not the mountain that rose from the sea or the mountain that, you know, is in the sea. It's, it's the rises, it's something that is, you know, it's active. It's a very active naming because it, it, the movement, the mountain may be still, but it's so surrounded by and, 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 and entangled with all these relationships of different endemic insects and, and plants and sometimes animals. Um, and especially if you then go under the water, there are so many, 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 many more species beneath the water than there are above. And, um, and so the, the mountain has always had this beautiful relationship with the water. It acts as a giant sponge. There's just so many, um, uh, so many liters that flows out of the, the mountain. So not just in the mountain, but actually flows out of the mountain itself. And all the different tributaries and rivers that flow from the mountain, so this you know drought was only a drought, according to the fact that the dam was running low, which is valid, and it was a crisis, and it was very important to sort out. But I think the perspective was you know, and remains so embedded in that neoliberal way of thinking that it was very difficult to quantify how much you know actual water we have when you're only looking at water from the perspective of what is coming through the kind of industrialized system.
0: All right, but let's come back to the topic of indigenous reclamation or revival.
1: I started thinking through this idea of indigenous food revival, but what ended up happening and what we really struggle with Um, when, you know, ancient knowledge comes up again in this contemporary time, especially in a colonial um, country, a a colonized country, is that that knowledge immediately can get usurped into those that have benefited from colonial rule, you know, so into whiteness, basically, and completely bypass indigenous people (laughs) Or completely bypass um, anybody else who's not white. And it becomes very quickly exclusive. So we've seen like veganism do that, right? Um, and, and organic food, same thing. It's kind of like just quickly gone into this like space of richness and wealth and, and exclusivity. And so you have to pay, for example, a lot more for this kind of stuff than um, ordinarily was, you know, and, and is still, you know, happening. And so that idea of indigenous food revival quickly became indigenous food reclamation because there was no political understanding with it. And because of, remember, I told you that depression that I'd gone into with food stuff and just feeling like I was doing all this work and it was always just getting extracted into these spaces of whiteness, like with the slow Food Movement here in the local, um, in, in, in our territory, um, I... Was trying to think of how can, in, how can indigenous food reclamation, how can our cuisine, how can we think about things in a much more broader way. So when I often find myself with tunnel vision and I'm trying and I'm, I'm really trying to work through a political problem. Um, around food for example i tried to break open all the walls and see it from a much you know look at it like an eagle does instead of an ant and what ended up happening was that i would i would say okay so what is indigenous food what is food it is plants the plants that we eat and the plants that we used to cook with maybe the plants like that we used to burn to make fire so those kinds of things i was thinking about the different kinds of waters that we have and we use from seawater to, you know, brakwat, like uh, um, uh, uh, fresh water, <laughs> sweet water, aquifers, all these kinds of things, right? Um, and then thinking through minerals like clays that we use for food, like salts, different salts, um, the animals that we eat, that we work with, that we you know, use, you know, eggs for vessels, all those kinds of things. And then it got to the microbes, And realizing um, that here in that space or that leg of of thinking of food, especially indigenous food, became its own space in which indigenous food reclamation could really um, be big and really balloon into something that always carried that political consciousness, but never really had to be aggressive in that. So there was a much more gentle kind of self-care and healing that could come from that Um, and being completely um, placing that idea of indigenous food or indigeneity very firmly into where fermentation was, was, was placed or was based. And so always working from that space and taking it back, to the fact that a lot of the indigenous food and the earliest recipes that, we're, that we know of in from this landscape had to do with fermentation also. So like making fermented honey um, alcoholic beverage, for example, um, which is done a little bit differently than I've seen or heard it done around the world.
0: After talking with our guest Zhang Khan, I searched for that beverage. I believe it might be kari, a kind of a honey wine of the Khoisan people, which is believed to be one of the world's oldest alcoholic drinks, dating back 15,000 years. If you would like to know more about the show, listen to this episode again or find previous episodes, please go to fermentradio.com. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and more. I'm always looking forward to hearing from you at hello at fermentradio.com. Ferment Radio is brought to you by Culture of Cultures and is produced by Super Eclectic. Thank you for listening.
1: Keep fermenting and stay tuned to the next episode of Ferment Radio.